Welcome everybody to our class today, to this new course, This Can Happen, a credible case for feeling good about the future. Today our class is going to be called Lesson 1, Start with the Science. You know, our nation as a people have been through a lot, been through a lot was probably an understatement. And because of that, we were unique in that in many ways. Amongst our uniquenesses, and probably most of us would prefer that that shouldn't be our uniqueness, was the very fact that we are probably the one most single nation on the universe that have been persecuted the most out of every type of nation or denomination. And probably for the greater part of the past of the 2,000 years, we've been exiled, persecuted, expelled, pick a nation, pick a country, they've done it to us. And from any type of method that they try to ostracize, excommunicate, expel, whether it was economic disenfranchisement, forced expulsions, any type of coerced conversions going to back to the Spanish, English, Muslims, pick your nation, pick your religion, Jewish people were always persecuted. And many thinkers and historians always wondered, what is it that kept the Jewish people alive? Now Jewish and non-Jewish as well explore this concept. And many have made a plausible argument to say that probably the one single greatest miracle of the Jewish people is its survival. Compared to any type of miracle, crossing of the sea, the plagues that were in Egypt, the Ten Commandments, the very fact that for the past 3,000 years we are still here today to tell the tale, that's probably one of the single most greatest miracles that ever happened. And over the course of the next few weeks, what we're going to explore is this great large piece of the puzzle and a significant factor in Jewish survival, which that is, that any time Jewish people were going through a tumultuous part of history, there was one thing they had in mind. This is only temporary. The real deal is soon coming. Mashiach is soon going to come. Mashiach will eventually come and redeem us and all of humanity and the entire universe. Now think about it. We Jews believe in a lot of things. We believe that God created heaven and earth. We believe that we had the exodus of Egypt. We believe that the Torah was given to us on Mount Sinai. We believe a lot of different, we believe that we have Shabbos as a day of rest because God rested on the seventh day. But Maimonides, when he put together his 13 principles of faith, two of his 13 principles of faith talk about the coming of Moshiach. Discuss about the coming of Moshiach, the imminent, the imminent redemption. One is about the belief in the imminent redemption, as we'll soon see. And one of them is about the belief in the resurrection of the dead. But both of them talk about, that means two out of 13, there's one that's Moses from Sinai, the Torah is from Sinai, one belief in the prophets, one that Torah is true. But beyond that, the only one that there's two about is about the coming of Moshiach. Even more so. In almost all of our prayers, in almost every single one of our prayers, not almost everyone, every single one of our prayers, at least one time, the mention of the coming of Moshiach is there. Whether it's the grace after meals, or it's the Amidah. The Amidah and the Amidah it's mentioned three times. So Maimonides keeps this as a very principal belief. That means the coming of Mashiach is something integral and part of our Judaism. Like in text number one, those that I have it online don't have it yet. 
Um, and we're not going to have that many uh, inside uh, parts. There's different graphs that we're going to have on the PowerPoint. So I'm going to try to keep all the things that we're going to be reading on the PowerPoint as well. And text number one is, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach, although he may tarry, I await his coming every day. So what we are going to talk about in the next six weeks is actually going to talk about this fundamental Jewish belief. And over the next few weeks, we're going to cover the following topics. Number one, what does the Jewish version of the redemption look like? We know that concept of Moshiach, Messiah, has been spoken about in other religions as well. What is the Jewish version? What does it mean, the coming of Moshiach? What will, what will be the state of the world, humankind, in the aftermath of it? What is the source of this belief? Where does it come from? Is it a Jewish belief? What makes it a Jewish belief? Even more so, how realistic is this belief? Do I have to suspend my better judgment to be able to believe this far-fetched notion that the world will come to an utopia of peace and spirituality? Even more so, do I really need to believe? What if, you know what, okay, it's a nice idea, what do I really need to believe about it? Does, does, how much does it really make? Does, it got, does a Torah-respecting Jew, can I still be agnostic or skeptical about the concepts of redemption? Even more so, is it relevant to us? What does it really make a difference? Why don't I just do? Wait and see. It happens great. It doesn't happen. Okay, we'll all some live. And perhaps probably the most pressing question is, do we really need the redemption? You know, for a greater part of Jewish history, the Jewish people have been so oppressed and I hope for a better tomorrow. But today, Baruch Hashem, we live in the land of the plenty, a Medina Shel Chesed, a country of kindness. It can be, you know, people are pretty much comfortable. Never before has there been so much Jewish wealth, so much Jewish uh, rulership and so on. That seemingly, and also we have today the state of Israel that has its own military and things like that. Some may question, do we even need the redemption today? And any other questions that people may have about this concept we hope to address. You know, they say a story about Rav Nachum of Chernobyl. Rav Nachum of Chernobyl was a uh, student of the Maggot of Mizrich, and he was a very spiritual person. And one time he was staying in an inn, and it was a custom, and it still is by some holy Jews, that every day at midnight, they cry and they mourn about the destruction of the holy temple. And they pray for the coming of Mashiach. That was, there's a custom, and they sit on the floor, some sit with ashes, and they learn Zohar, and they say Tehillim, and this is a custom by very holy Jews that they do this. So one time, Rav Nachum and Chernobyl was in his travels, and he stopped by an inn, and he's staying there for the night. Came midnight, he sits down on the floor, and he starts crying. The innkeeper sees the old rabbi crying, he runs over to him and he says, Rabbi, what's the matter? Why are you crying? Rav Nachum tells him, you know, I'm mourning the destruction of the holy temple, and I'm praying that Mashiach should bring us to our homeland. The ignorant innkeeper had no clue what he's talking about. So he asks him, what, what's Mashiach, the Holy Temple? What are you talking about? So he starts to explain to him, you know, that Mashiach is going to come. And we're all going to move to the land of Israel. There's going to be a world of peace. So the innkeeper says, I, I don't know. Let me first talk to my wife if I'm moving to Israel. I, I don't know if this is a good idea. So he goes and talks to his wife. He comes back a few, a little bit later. 
He says, I spoke to my wife. My wife said, we can't just pick up and move the sheep. There's cows, there's goats. We can't move to Israel like this. Rabbi, it's not going to work out. So Rabbi Nachum tells him, come on. Don't you have your landlord, the parts, is making you problems with the rent. And then you have the pogroms, the peasants. Don't they come banging on your door in the middle of the night? They steal from you this and that and the other. Wouldn't you want to have Moshiach so you can go to Israel? He says, you don't. You bring up a good point. Let me go talk to my wife. So he goes back. He consults with his wife. He comes back to Reb Nachum. And he says, Reb Nachum, I spoke to my wife. We have a better idea. Instead of praying that we should go to Israel, pray that the peasants and the pirates let them all go to Israel and we'll stay here happy. Sometimes we don't get confused and we don't know what Mashiach is all about. What does it really mean? And we get confused and say, hey, if it's about moving to Israel, okay, let everybody else move to Israel and we'll live here happily. What is it really? And this over the next six weeks, we're going to explore and learn about this and look at it from all different angles, from a physical, spiritual, and then how they both interact with each other. So let's get started. So as we will come to see that the coming of Moshiach has in it two different components. A physical component of how the world, the way it is physically, will change, and how the world spiritually will change. And as we will come to learn in the next few classes, is how those two are actually interrelated and interconnected. Today what we're going to focus on is exclusively on the physical, material side of the redemption. And in the coming weeks, we will continue to explore the spiritual side of it. What does this mean? According to Jewish tradition, in the age of redemption, is going to be fabulously different than in the times preceding it. And we're going to look now at a few different prophecies that are mentioned, and we're going to go through them and see some of the prophecies that are mentioned, that will happen in the time of Moshiach. In text number two, a quote from Maimonides. Maimonides says, In the era, there will be no, in that era, there will be no famine, no war, no envy, no competition. For goodness will be in abundance, and all delights will be as a commonplace of dust. Okay? That's the first step of that's Maimonides. Maimonides tell us there will be an abundance. There'll be a lot. You won't have to scramble. Everything will be a lot. Number two. This is Maimonides. Now we're going to go to the prophet of Zechariah. The prophet of Zechariah, you see it in text number three, and you can see it up here on the board as well, is going to be the prophet Zechariah says, on that day there will no longer be an impoverished person in the house of God. Poverty will be done with. Number four, plentiful food. This is from Isaiah. God will give rain for your seed in which you shall sow the soil. It will give you plentiful bread. The yield will land and the land will be rich and abundant. Again, Isaiah. At that time, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. At that time, the lame shall skip like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing. Isaiah then continues, Isaiah 2.4, Nation shall not lift a sword against the nation, nor shall anyone train for any, more war, any war anymore. He then continues in Isaiah 2.4, I think this is on the side of the 
Uh, that, the one that we just said, I think, is on the side of the United Nations, right? And I think this one as well is, this armament, nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning tools. And then finally from Isaiah in text number 8, is no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor robbery or devastation within your borders. So if you can see these texts, quite clearly, quite clearly state that Judaism believes that all the problems in the world today are not permanent. They're temporary. And the future is quite bright. Are you concerned about war? Bothered by the existence of poverty? Does hunger and famine bother you? What about illness? The prophets of old tell us, don't you worry. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine and dandy. All these things that you are worried about, the biblical prophets foresaw a time where this will totally be eradicated. All the problems will be resolved and we're marching towards a bright future. Now it seems like, is this, how can this happen? Right? They say there was once this tired farmer. He retired from his job and he decided, you know what? I worked really hard all my life. I want to become a doctor. And he becomes a doctor. Puts up a big shingle outside and he says, $500 for a visit. If I don't cure you, $1,000. You get back $1,000. Good deal. The only problem is that the guy that has a PhD down the block gets upset. He says, I'm going to teach this doctor a lesson. Eh, he's garnished. He knows nothing. What's he coming to make believe he's a doctor? So, Dr. Young from down the block comes along and he says, I'm going to show this old, illiterate, ignorant farmer. He knows nothing. So he walks inside as a patient and he says, okay, Dr. Farmer, I lost my taste. Maybe he had COVID. I don't know. He lost his taste. So, the doctor says, no problem. He calls the nurse and he tells the nurse, bring me the bottle from drawer 2 and the bottle from drawer 13. And he said, puts three drops from drawer 2, two drops from drawer 13. And all of a sudden, the doctor starts screaming. Dr. Young, the, 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 the patient, says, that's gasoline. What are you doing? And he says, oh, congratulations. You got your taste, $500. <laughs> so the doctor, this patient who was a doctor walks out fuming. He ripped me off $500. I'm going to show him. He comes back the next day and he says, uh, Dr. Young, I mean, Dr. Farmer, I lost my memory. Maybe you can help me. He says, oh, you lost your memory? We have a special remedy for it. Okay, no problem. He says, I'm going to get back my $500 this time. So he sits down in the patient chair and the doctor, the farmer, comes along, puts three drops from, he says, okay, he tells the nurse, bring me three drops from draw two, Three drops from three, draw 13. All of a sudden, the patient starts yelling, Don't you dare put that gasoline again! Ah, he says, hey, you got the memory back, $500. <laughs> so he feels that like he's ripped off $1,000. He says, I got to get this guy back. Finally, a few weeks, he thought of a plan. He comes back to the doctor. But this time, he walks home with a walking stick. He's blind. He says, Dr. Farmer, I'm blind. I need help. He says, oh, you know what? Actually, the farmer tells him. This, I don't have a remedy for. So, I owe you now $1,000. This doctor sounds excited. Finally, I caught him. And he gives him the money. All of a sudden, this PhD, Dr. Young, starts yelling at him, that's only $500! He says, ah, congratulations, you have your eyesight back. You owe me $500. A lot of times, it's a question of how we see things. And sometimes, 
if somebody looks at these prophecies of Isaiah, Zechariah, Maimonides, it seems far-fetched. How is it possible? How is the Messianic era going to happen? So I ask you a question, and you have this exercise in 1.2. What would you say today? Are we living in the best of times or the worst of times? Do you think the world is going in the right direction or in the wrong direction? So what would you say? I'm going to ask you this question. You all can vote out loud. If not, how would you rate the state of our world today compared to its state 50 years ago? Not going a thousand years ago, 50 years ago. Have conditions generally improved or deteriorated? A, greatly improved. B, somewhat improved. C, the situation is more or less the same. D, somewhat deteriorated. E, greatly deteriorated. Anybody? You say E. Anybody else? What do you think? Go get it on my desk. Which one? <laughs> A or E? A, going, anybody online also feel you can chime in. What do you think? That the world is greatly deteriorated or it got better? Okay, any, let's just take a ray or raise that. Anybody say bad, worse or better? By worse. Who says worse? Worse. Much worse. I don't know. Okay, that's a good one. Anybody says better? Okay. What about this? Now let's take it a step further. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Optimistic. Okay. What? Who's pessimistic? Okay. Optimistic means you're positive or you're negative. What do you think? It's going to be better or it's going to be worse? Oh, okay. Better. Okay. Very good. He doesn't remember 50 years ago. It's great that we live. Okay. So we're living in a. So thank God I'm surrounding myself with optimistic people. I'm good. I like it. Okay. But unfortunately. Huh? Huh? Just drink it. So there's a prevalent, uh, there's a prevalent attitude in society today. That life used to be better than it is today. In fact, that the first thing that I answered, the most first thing that somebody said when we asked the question was that it's worse. It used to be better. Many people say our parents had it better and therefore our children are going to have it worse off. Oy vey, I remember I was once in, a, um, in an elevator in the hospital. I told you this story probably once before. And this old guy, I'm standing talking to him, so I'm making a small chat and he's holding the newspaper. So I asked him, any good news in the newspaper today? So he says, nah, and thank God I'm on my way out, he tells me. <laughs> this was his answer. But in fact, you think it's a joke. The New York Times started in, um, I think it was in 2017. Yeah, September 18, 2017, they decided the good news column. But guess what? After a year, they stopped doing it because there was no interest in it. The problem is the prevalent way of thinking today is, and here's a little letter to the editor, you can see I put it up on the screen, of, that was written in, uh, in the Boston Globe in 1997. The guy says as follows, we seem to be in a rapid change of increasing instability and security and danger. The Indian life was a difficult one, the winters were harsh, people died, but there was no employment problems, community harmony was strong, substance abuse unknown, crime nearly non-existent. What warfare was there between tribes was largely ritualistic and seldom resulted in indiscriminate wholesale slaughter. While there were hard times, life was for the most part stable and predictable. The seasons passed in their turn, and then with came a few exceptions, a means of providing food, warmth, and shelter. And the nostalgic writer is not alone from 2017. 
There was a market research company called Ipsos Mori, who, based in London, England, conducted a detailed survey of 26,489 people across 28 different countries, surveying the respondents of what and different perceptions of the state of the world. And one of the questions were global poverty rates. And here you can see it in figure 1.2 on page 10. There was a survey question in the last 20 years. Has the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty decreased, increased, or remained the same? Without looking at the graph, what would you say? Decreased. Huh? Decreased. 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 Well, interesting thing. They asked the regular people. 20% of the people said extreme poverty decreased. 28% said it increased. 52% of people uh, answered that extreme poverty has increased. That means more than half of the respondents believe that in the world the number of people in poverty has increased in the last 20 years. We're not talking about 100 years. So, Other questions in the survey produced the same equally negative and pessimistic responses. For example, crime. Crime is becoming more common or less common? Less. So in the 2024, in 20, oh listen, listen to this. In 20 of 2024 Gallup surveys conducted since 1993, at least 60, listen to this survey, at least 60% of U.S. adults have said there is more crime nationally than there was the year before. If you look at the survey figure 1.3, the survey is the more crime in the U.S. than there was a year ago. And if you look through most of the years, you see most people say 78 say more, 64 more, and most of the people say more. It looks like if you ask the average person, the average layman doesn't believe that things are going to get better. A 2015 survey of 18,000 people in 17 countries asked the following question. Listen to this. The question was, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better, worse, or neither getting better or worse? 58% of people around the world believed the world is getting worse. 1% said they don't know. 11% said getting better. And I think those all 11% are sitting in this room. 30% neither getting better nor getting worse. So what we see over here is, what, would, what do we see? Just take an example. In fact, you think every year is getting worse. Just some of the headlines of this, week, this year's um, titles. Time Magazine, 2020, worst year ever. 2020, worst year ever. Worst year ever, and there's still six months to go. Okay? This is, this is from 2020. So what more do you need? In fact, many think that life is getting worse every year, as you can see over here. And here's just a quick video to prove that point. It seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. They now said that there were 11 hostages, two were killed in their rooms, nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. U.S. intelligence sources insist that the graphite core of the reactor is still burning and spewing radiation into the atmosphere. 
Well, over the course of just a hundred days, about 800,000 people were slaughtered in Rwanda by ethnic Hutu extremists. More than 500 people were already in their offices, and at least 50 children were in a daycare center on the second floor. We have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. More than 28,000 people are confirmed dead or missing. These are the fighters ISIS is preparing to be stone-cold killers, featured in a new training camp video. More than 250,000 coronavirus-related deaths. That chilling number expected to climb as hospitalizations reach an all-time high. So there's clearly a widespread belief that what's happening to the world has gone bad. That the good old days, far from the best of times, we may be living in the worst of times. And this, of course, has been exacerbated with COVID, the pandemic that has recently ravaged not just one city, not just one state, not just one country. The entire globe, the entire world is shut down, wreaking havoc on anything possible, social life, economy, killing millions of people. So what are the consequences when somebody has such a worldview? What happens when a person believes this? Anxiety, stress, hopelessness, negative emotions make us feel lousy. Why should I bother getting up in the morning? Everything's just going to crumble anyway, right? And things of that type. And therefore, discipline, success, health, all these things that impacts it. At the same time, we don't want to be naive. If things are really bad, we don't want to ignore it. We don't want to, you know, ignorance is bliss, but at the same time, it's ignorance. <laughs> So many people think that the world is going out of control. But, as you look at it, and the proof in the pudding, as we're going to see, that this is far from the truth. Rabbi? Yes? Isn't that mostly because of the media? And that's, I mean, a hundred years ago, you didn't have the media 24 hours a day like you do now. That is true, but the problem is, uh, that's true. Because, as I mentioned before, the media, and as I, we're going to get to in a moment, news today thrives on negative news. News today, as we mentioned before, in the New York Times had that good news column and nobody was reading it. And we're going to get to that in a moment and we'll talk about that as we'll get to it to the end of the class. One second. So what we see over here is the bottom line is whether what the reason and what the causes are, we're not going to get into the moment, but the bottom line is that many people have this common assumption that are not true, as we're going to go to, get to it, that what's going on and what's happening in the truth. So what is the truth? Is the present really worse than the past? And is the state of the world really declining? And this is what we're going to talk about today in our lesson to see what the world is really, ha what's, what's truly happening to the world and what's really happening. And that's our question here. Is the present truly worse than the past? Unlike the world popular pessimism, as we mentioned before, the Torah views the world and sees a very positive future for us, which is the coming of Mashiach, the era of redemption. And what we're going to look at and see something very fascinating. The Rebbe finds an interesting, uh, interesting comparison 
When it comes to Shabbat, it says, you work really hard in preparing for the food of Shabbat, but then, before Shabbat even starts, you get to taste a little bit of the food of Shabbos. The chicken soup is cooking, you go over, you take a bowl, you taste, ah, you know, it's really good, and you'll be able to enjoy it later on. Or the chicken, or the kugel, whatever it may be. On the eve of Shabbat, we get to taste a little bit what we're going to have on Shabbos. So too, the world is compared to the 6,000 years, is compared to the six days of the week. The seventh millennium is the Shabbat, and on that day of rest. And right before Shabbat, we get to taste a little bit of Shabbos. So right before the time of redemption, we'll also get to taste a little bit of the time of redemption, of those Shabbos delicacies. Let's see in text number nine. The Rebbe says as follows. All of the experiences of the future redemption begin with and before Mashiach arrival. Just as Jewish law encourages us to sample Shabbos food in the hours before Shabbos, similarly, in the sixth millennium, even before the onset of the redemption, we can already sample the experiences that will fully materialize in the future. In addition to receiving a foretaste of the spiritual delights we will experience then, the instruction to taste from the Shabbos food quite simply means to taste the fish. The same is true in the era preceding the redemption we will have physical blessings in abundance and we'll be able to serve God out of material prosperity. So before even getting to the spiritual prosperity that comes before the coming of Moshiach, there will be a certain element of physical prosperity in this world. That means even before the redemption arrives, there will be an improvement in our condition that are going to be in similar ways as prophesied before the redemption. So how is this possible? But, and if we continue, as we can see, in many ways, today is probably the best time to be alive ever. I'm not only saying this compared to the year of 1349, when there was dark ages and half of Europe's population was wiped out with plagues or with wars and so on. But if going to look at yourself... I always say, imagine they come back just from 150 years ago and they start seeing running water and refrigeration and everything else. Imagine the differences to what we have today to what we just they only had 100 years ago, 150 years ago, to the 1950s, the 1990s. The very fact that how well connected you can be just with this little device, whether it's good or not, there's a different story. But the bottom line is that today, in 2020, we are healthier than we were in 1990. We are wealthier than we were in 1990. We are more comfortable than all of all of history. So what we see over here is that when we talk about experiencing a change, an unbelievable change of how we're living today, we are so, why are so many oblivious of this amazing progress that's happening around them? We're living in a world we are things that we literally have in our fingertips that they did not have 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And still in all, majority of people think that we're getting worse, not better. Why is it? So let's talk about it for a moment. It says that everybody is entitled to their own opinion, right? But the only problem is you're not entitled to your own facts. So we're going to have the facts speak for themselves. So let's discuss some facts before we go by, back to why people believe this. And we're going to go back and compare the prophecies 
to the changes in the world. And let's see if we're getting a taste of the redemption. What did we read in Zechariah? What was the first prophecy we read? Zechariah's prophecy about poverty. His assertion was that poverty will be eliminated during the Messianic era. Such a claim, if you would have said it, especially in the time of Zechariah, where poverty was something which was rampant. Or not only that, a few decades ago. The Great Depression, a few centuries ago. Today we are alive, today in a world where this conversation is basically almost eradicated. And think about it this way. As of 2015, extreme poverty, and what is extreme poverty? Defined by the World Bank as earning less than $1.90 a day, compare 2015 to 1820. Now adjusted for inflation. I don't want to make you crazy here with the numbers. But the global population, you can see it in your graph, uh, figure 1.5. The global population suffering from extreme poverty went from nearly 90% in 1820. That's only 100 and something years ago, right? To around a 10% in 2000. Yeah, 200 years ago, I'm sorry. Yeah, there you go, thank you. 90% to 10% in 2015. Now, you might not be all surprised to learn that's the economic world today, but you'll realize these advances just in a decade. That's 200 years. From 1981, two decades. Here you have a graph. I put it on the board over here. You have a figure here, 1.6. The world population living in extreme poverty from 1981 to 2017. Now just watch over here. I'm going to hit the slide and you're going to see the difference. When I, when I see hit the slide, you're going to see the map is going to change colors from gray to red, here you go, there we go. So you here, you see the red, one billion in extreme poverty, and as you go up, you see it's almost not extreme poverty. So you have today, from 1820 to 2015, you see how it drops the unbelievable going from extreme poverty to almost nothing in, in uh, 2015. So since 1990, number of people living above extreme poverty has nearly doubled. In 1990, listen to this. This is unbelievable numbers, but I don't want to bore you with it, but just it's a great number here. There were 1.9 billion people living in extreme poverty. The number was reduced to 735 million in 2015. That means within a span of 15 years. In 2015, 128 thousand fewer people were living in extreme poverty and in seven years from 2008 to 2015 the headline could have been in your local newspaper could have said the number of people in extreme poverty fell 1992,000 people a day that means in those seven years you could have had the amount of people that were going out of poverty, 192,000 people a day. So if you want to be a little upbeat, look in text number 10. If you're depressed by the state of the world, let me toss out an idea in the long arc of human history. 2019 has been the best year ever. You see, I think I fell off my head. As recently as 1981, 42% of the planet's population endured extreme poverty, defined by the United Nations as living under $2 a day. That portion has plunged to less than 10% of the world's population now. 
Every day, for a decade, newspapers could have carried a headline, another 170,000 moved out of extreme poverty yesterday. Or in one news, a higher threshold. The headline could have said, the number of people living on more than $10 a day has increased by 245,000. Going a little further, the huge drop in number of people living on less than 190 a day is among the most underappreciated and most important developments of our generation. Now, this is not 50 years ago. Where do they live up to? Even when we're talking about in underpoverished countries. But what we're saying is in the global population, if you think about it, this is not something that happened. Improving, yeah. huh? It's not only improving in 100 years, I'm talking about in 10 years, in 20 years. Yeah. The amount of improvement of poverty. We're going back, we're looking at the prophecy of Isaiah and looking how the world is changing. That's why they say for a decade, from, from 1981 on, a decade, every day of the, of, of the, of the decade, you could say 100, if you... 180,000 people. Yeah, yeah you're, you're dividing... Correct, because you're dividing 1.5 billion in that amount of time. Yeah, yeah, and that would... Correct. So, an interesting thing is, take it even a step further... At the same time, while we can't be sure, you'll say, like you brought up, who's living on a dollar ninety a day? It's not the greatest thing as well, no. and we can't be happy with that. And we still have to get people in the better. But the bottom line is that we see the line is moving. It's not staying. There's an upward trend. People are making money. There's things happening. So to believe that the world is going downhill in a spiral and it's the end of the world, it's like thinking Niagara Falls is going up. You know, it's like a, a little bit different. So what we see over here very clearly is that we're heading towards Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah said there won't be any poverty at all. We're now less than 10%. We're pretty close. Now you might be say, you might say one second, who's climbing out of extreme poverty? That's all developing countries, Africa, who knows what place. But what about the advanced countries? What about places like here? One second. What about places like here? What about places in America? Are we also climbing the ladder? Is the needle moving there? And here's the interesting thing. The median income of any U.S. household has steadily been rising, adjusted with inflation, since the recent economic... We're talking about since the recent economic downturn. That means more people are seeing prosperity. Now, I'm talking about the median income. I'm not talking about average. And the difference between median and average is... I don't know if many of you know... Average, okay, average will be if I take everybody together and I take one number. That means if I have a rich person and a poor person, automatically the rich person is going to bring up the average. Right. So automatically, if there's more billionaires, the average will be much higher. Median means I take the middle and I put some on top and put some on bottom. So the median income has risen. That means what the regular person may be, and even though there's a big myth that's going on, the shrinking middle class and everything else, that is not necessarily so. Because, as we can see, that the median income, so the share of income, not only that, let's take it even a step further, where you can see how people have money. The amount that people spent on food, that means between 1960, listen to this, between 1960 and 2019, the share of disposable personal income spent by Americans fell on average to 9.5% from 17.5%. That means because their food got cheaper, that means people have more money to spend on other things. Because they have more income, they also have more money to spend on other things. So over here we see that people are doing pretty well. So what we can see over here is, ask yourself the same question. Look at your house 
compared to the house that your parents lived in. Look at your groceries or look at the food or what you spend money on compared to what your parents spent on. You will see there's bigger houses today. We are able to spend more. We're able to have more luxuries than they had back then. And the answer is you see very clearly that in your own personal life, we are today seeing a prosperity in any level and in most levels more than they had 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and even more so 100 years ago. Let's go to the next thing. The next prophecy. The next prophecy is, what was Isaiah's prophecy? Isaiah's prophecy in text number four was about the abundance of food in the time of the Messianic era. Now let's remember, especially in Isaiah's time and in biblical times and even in the next thousand years, famine was a very regular occurrence. Look at the Bible. Abraham had to leave because of famine. Isaac had a famine. Jacob had a famine. Joseph had a famine. Pharaoh had a famine. Isaiah had a famine. Elisha had a famine. Elijah had a famine. And then keep on going. There were famines was something which was very common. In days of old, providing food and water for a large population was a very tedious, difficult task. Because of transportation, because of spoilage, and all other types of things. In today's day and age... We have refrigeration, we have transportation, and to be able to feed the amount of people bringing food from one place to the next is becoming relatively very easy. You can go into the store today and you can buy food from almost any place in the world. You have ice cream from Israel. They don't make it here, they make it in Israel, and you still have it here. So refrigeration, preservation, the ideas on how they're able to plant and mass produce and things of these things. So therefore, famine and food shortages, which used to be a normal part of life, today no longer. With the advent of trucks, trains, airplanes, electricity, refrigeration, and many other methods of food refrigeration, we can keep our food longer, we can have better food, and we can bring food to places where they couldn't get to. Then even as these improvements were rolled out, during the second half of the 20th century, a new fear came about. And here's the video. Overpopulation so long predicted has stolen the farms. It's getting worse week by week. In the 1960s, a new kind of fear began to spread across America. The U.S. could be busting out of the scenes by the end of the century. If we do not, by humane means, limit our numbers, then numbers are going to be limited by more famines and shortages and consequent social conflicts. The idea that human population was outstripping the Earth's ability to support mankind was a powerful one. Population growth will kill you stone cold dead. The message reached a wider audience than ever before. But what became of the population bomb? Diffused by urbanization, by people getting out of poverty all over the world, by having enough to eat. What if large population is not bad, but is good? What many more countries are already trying to come to terms with is aging of the population. Japan needs more women to have children. The fertility rate's low. The population is, is getting... What happened? Yeah, what happened? Oh, one second, we signed that. Oh, hold on. We'll get back in there. Yeah, yeah, just one second. Hold on. 
it's the internet misbehaving. Are you all back on? Yeah, it's keep, keep we're gonna. Yeah, so we can Okay, we're just gonna play that video one more time. Okay, hopefully we'll work this time. Sorry about this, but just one second. Yeah, I know, just give me one second. It's just the uh, the internet is a little shaky, so let's see. To extender. Let's see if we can get better here. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry? So be a little more optimistic of I think we'll, uh, I guess we got the, the point of the video here is Do you hear me on, these, on the Zoom there? Yeah, you hear me? Okay, great. So, the bottom line of this part of the film was that the, the population that people were afraid of overpopulation in the 1960s and all these negative predictions that they said all of a sudden the population bomb is not going to be enough food for everybody else and everything else did any of it pan out absolutely I not okay 
Okay, just to give you an example, the 1960, the world population was 3 billion people. Today, the world population is 8 billion people. One can only imagine that if there would have been famines and food shortages, we probably wouldn't, and those fears would have been accurate, we wouldn't have got to where we are today. But because of the great technological and breakthroughs that we have, it allowed us to produce more food. And therefore, here are some, a little bit of data that might help you out. In 2018, each day on average saw about 305,000 people gaining access to clean drinking water for the very first time. And you can see this in figure 1.7. The amount of people that used to die... One second, they lost me again. I see you're on. Merinda, are you on? This is crazy. Okay. Are you on? Do you get... Lost me. Answer me if you're on. I guess not. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Hello, are you on? Okay, okay, it's me. I won't come back on here. The, uh, sorry about this, but the internet is um, not so sh- is a little shaky here, so that's what's going on here. <laughs> this happens every so often. Okay, we'll have to figure out a better method for the internet for next class, but... Uh, Do I have a cable for the router? Yeah, maybe that might help. Okay. Maybe that's what we'll do. Next week we'll try to keep wired and not be wireless, so it'll be a little better. Um... Do you see me there? Is everybody on? How come I can't see them? Okay. I see you and hear you. Okay, so we're back on. Okay, very good. So, where was I? In the worst decade recorded in history, you can see was the 1870s. Around there, about 142 out of 100,000 people died of famine. In 2010, just to put numbers in perspective, 0.5 people per 100,000 died of a famine. That's almost nil. So if we talk about famine being destroyed, being out, we've seen it very clearly. Today, the same parcel of land that produced a small amount of crap back then, today can produce much more substantially greater And this has to do with the way they produce the crop, what they've done, the technology that's in producing and production and so on. Let's go even a little bit further to water, drinking water. As I just said, in 2018, each day on average saw about 305,000 people gaining access to clean drinking water for the very first time. All these improvements are not only impacting the third world countries like Namibia, Sudan, but even those are lucky enough in developed countries Just take a little peek, and here I'll show you a very interesting picture. Look at this picture, and I'm sure many of you here can relate to it. This is a grocery store, what it looked like in the 1960s, okay? Look at a grocery store today. See the difference? From the 60s and 70s, your your grocery store footprint was not bigger than 15,000 square foot. The biggest grocery store was 15,000 square foot. Today, on average, a gr- sorry. You need to shave your screen. We can't see what you're pointing to. 
Yeah. I'm sorry. That was the time of the guy in the cashier knew everyone. What was that? That's the time when the guy in the cashier knew everyone was coming get to the yeah. That was my second job. I, I was a cashier in the supermarket. We had to know all the prices in our head. There we go. Let's Put them do in this. like this. So, again, what do we see over here? A grocery store in the 1960s, the largest one was about 15,000 square feet. Today, you have an each one is about 45,000 square feet. Why? Look at the variety of products. You want to buy mushrooms, you have about 17 different ones. Corn, whatever you pick, tomato soup, ketchup, whatever you want. There's so many different varieties, so many different varieties of food, whether you're organic, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, whatever. You pick your choice, what you want, there's everything there. In fact, in two, a new survey, text number 12, a new survey by Consumer Reports National Research Center confirms that the option overload can be a hindrance as well as a help. Almost 80% of 2,818 subscribers surveyed that they found an especially wide range of choices in the previous month. And 36% of those said they were overwhelmed by the information they had to process to make buying decisions. Between 1975 and 2008, the number of products in the average supermarket swelled from an average of 8,948 to almost 47,000, according to the Food Marketing Institute and Trade Group. In the past few years, that number has fallen slightly, in part because of the growth spurt among smaller stores. Consumers have always had choices, but today, options have explored beyond all reasons. So exactly, we have so much. And because we have so much, what are we doing? complaining <laughs> why do I have so many choices now go tell that there are people who just a hundred years ago a thousand years ago suffered from a famine they are not going to sympathize with you let's take another prophecy okay we spent too much time already about the groceries <laughs> enough with the food let's take the next famine the ne- I'm sorry the next prophecy the next prophecy of Isaiah was Isaiah said there will no longer be from there, a youth or an old man who will not fill his days. For the youth of his, who is 100 years old shall die. What did he say? He speaks about human lifespan. The average human lifespan has, since the ninth, has dramatically risen since the beginning of the 19th century. Here's a little PowerPoint to show that. As we did before, just look at the Look at the colors, how they changed, and the life expectancy, and you see it changing dramatically, different colors, as they go from orange, the colors red, pink, and orange indicate the lowest life expectancy, green, blue, and purple show you the higher life expectancies, and how they dramatically change. Watch as the colors change as the years go on. That means people dying younger and dying older years. So the blue and the green, you see how it's changing as the years go on? On the bottom, you see the chairs. The Africa is going the slowest, yes. But you see, as it turns gray and blue, automatically people are living longer and longer in different places around the world. So that's right. So what you see from here, since 1800, the global life expectancy nearly tripled, and since 1900, it nearly doubled. Let's do a moment the same thing about child mortality. Child mortality as defined as death of a child before age five. Unfortunately, 15,000 children die every single day. 
That's 30,000 grieving parents. This is an everyday tragedy, and it's terrible. But at the same time, look at the progress that was made. Child mortality. Here we go, one second. Just one second. This is child mortality. Here we go. Here you see the graph again. Child mortality. Again, the reddish colors turn to blue. Watch how they turn to blue over the time. The child's dying before 1950. As 1922, as the years go up, as you see the years go up, you can see how it's turning from red to blue to blue. Red is bad. That means they're dying very young. And as its years are going up, it's turning to blue. North America is doing the best because they have the best medicine for children. What we see over here very clearly is why have lifespans increased? Why do we have child mortality less? There are many reasons. Okay, so let's go. Why are there many reasons? Number one, the decline of war and violence, which we'll soon get to in a moment, how many people died during war and violence. Number two, the wider, back to what we mentioned before, the fact that today there's food in more places. How many people died then because of famine and hunger? How many children died because of hunger? And perhaps the most significant is the advent of medicine. Getting a question here, hold on. So, what we have over here is, what we have, what do we see? What do we see? A very clear case, and I'm sure many of you in this room can be a testimony to this. Anybody have smallpox? Anybody know of a case of smallpox? How many of you have still the smallpox shot? Did it make a mark on you? Okay, I think it did make They don't even give the smallpox vaccine anymore. Smallpox has been eradicated. What about polio? Have you met a person with polio? Huh? Polio has been eradicated, basically. So why? Because medicine today with its advantage, whether it's vaccine, the fact is that we have little, almost no first-hand experience with any of these people of smallpox or any of these types of things. It's a testament to the great strides that we're doing in medicine today and how medicine advanced. And this is, we have eradicated, sorry? Not significant to what there were before. Let's go. Here, the most significant reason, perhaps, the biggest advantage in medicine are because of, number one, eradicated completely smallpox, polio, rabies, syphilis, tetanus, reduced malaria, measles, tuberculosis, hepatitis, hepatitis B, and mumps, and manageable. It used to be a person with diabetes died at 20 years old. Today, people with diabetes can live a good life, a long life, and AIDS even as well. So what we see over here that we've accomplished and gone as a result Looking ahead in 2015, the Office of National Statistics in the UK projected that we will soon reach a 100-year average lifespan. That means there are many cutting-edge breakthroughs that are today around and being worked on, which help people extend their life, whether it's to help their memory, whether it's to help any type of movement that whatever they have, to be able to make them live, not only live until 100, but live productive lives until for such long lives. So what we've read over here so far, what we've read over here so far is all the different prophecies that we've mentioned. Prophecies from Zechariah, Isaiah, talking about the time of the coming of Mashiach, we've seen the world advance in it. Let's just touch a few more before we continue. 
And over here we talk about disabilities. And we're going to get to a few disabilities. We have a disability called the blind. Today people that are blind have blindness, deafness. Okay, we're going to get to the deaf. will hear. And what did he say about the lame? will walk. And the mute will talk, will speak. It sounds too good to be true. How is this all possible? But let's look at some of the dances that have happened in the recent times. The blind will see. We have eyeglasses here. What are eyeglasses? How long have people had glasses for? A few hundred years. A few hundred years? I think about it. 200 years, yeah, but the, the very fact that people... But what was the prescription back then? The moment a person... They can afford it. Not A, they have to be able to afford it. B, they didn't have such a strong prescription. They were already considered blind. And C, the advent today that we don't only have glasses, we have cataract surgery, we have corneal transplants, we have LASIK, and even today they're going even beyond LASIK implant lenses and all that type of stuff. Well, we're going to get to what this means. Let's see in text number 13. If you had seen Lisa Kulik and her husband strolling the grounds of the University of Southern California Eye Institute last summer, but you have thought nothing of it, but for Kulik, that simple walk around the com- campus was a miracle. Blind for more than two decades for an inherited eye disease called retinous pigmentosa, Kulik was seeing again, clearly enough to make out the sidewalk and the grassy edge, thanks to a sophisticated microchip implanted in one of her eyes. This device is called the Argus II. It is just one of the growing number of bold new approaches to treating blindness, offering hope to millions of the mostly older Americans in danger of losing their eyes from macular degeneration, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, and other eye diseases. In fact, progress in ophthalmology are rapid, and some researchers have already begun to envision an end to many of the vision loss. We still have a lot to learn, admits Stephen Rose, Chief Researcher of Office of Foundation Fighting Blindness, but it's not a question of if we'll end blindness. It's really just a question of when. Okay? Let's take another example. Okay, so blind, just here, the blind will see. Isaiah said that. What do we have today with all the different advances? It's pretty clear that they're getting there. Let's take the next one. Deaf. The deaf will hear. In 1898 was the first time a hearing aid was made. What was a hearing aid back then? It was basically a horn. The guy stuck in his ear and it amplified the sound that was outside. As of 2016... The Ear Foundation in the United Kingdom estimated the number of cochlear implant recipients in the world is about 600,000. That's a lot of deaf people who can now hear. So look at this. So I just want to show you the implant that they have here. And then this is an amazing video. I'm sure you've seen this before. But here's, watch this video of when a child is able to hear. Let's hope it doesn't stop us from hearing. Okay.
So what we see from here is, again, another fantastic time. We're living in more progress to make, but we see these prophecies that the people that will delay, the deaf will hear, it's coming true. It's not just a fantasy. Let's take another one. In the past, people who suffered from wear and tear on their hips, joints, and knees became wheelchair-bound, had severe pain. These days, common procedure, a hip replacement, it's almost a walk in the park, if you want to call it, literally. It's in-and-out procedure. It's not even an overnight stay anymore. The surgeries are routine. Patients are able to retain or complete painless mobility within a few weeks or months. Here's another video of some amputees that were walking. The lame will walk. Let's hope this one works a little better than the other one.
So again, that's pretty cool, I must say. So apparently, the lame are well on their way to leaping and even rock climbing. Let's go again to another one. Have a look at the following headlines. Here, the mute will speak. Another one of Isaiah's prophecies. What does it say in these headlines here? Artificial larynx gives the mute a new voice. Voice transplants one step closer. Scientists grow you to human voice cords. Again, we see the times of the coming of Mashiach closer at our door. But perhaps one of the most famous prophecies, and as I said, one that's printed on the UN wall, is one that tells us, nation shall not lift a sword against nation, nor shall anyone train for war anymore. Isaiah tells us about a grandoise event, an event of a time where there won't be any wars anymore. People won't be training for war. Civilization will, be, civilization will come to an end and everybody will be at peace. But think about it. Many years ago, not too long ago, war was lauded. A person, what was considered a champion in Rome, in Greece, or even Napoleon. He was a warrior. A good general, a person who can kill, brave to be able to kill many people. War and hostilities was part of a way of life. But Judaism always despised war. Judaism never looked to go to war. Judaism war was only out of necessity. And therefore, it was never celebrated, the concept of war. And Judaism envisions a time when there won't be war. Today, there is still an unacceptable amount of war and battle deaths. But the numbers are drastically different than they were. The 20th century saw many bloodshed during the two world wars, World War I and World War II. But as we're going to see in the following graph, it's completely very down to what it was hundreds of years ago. So if you look right here in this graph, we talk about state-based battle-related deaths globally per 100,000 going from 1946 to 2016, just in the last 50 years. But I think what perhaps is most important is the attitude that people have towards war. It used to be, as I mentioned, you were glorified as a war hero if the more people you were able to kill. The attitude of going to war was, come on, let's more wars. Today, that's the opposite. The United Nations Charter for, war that, for whatever, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat of use of force against territorial integrity or political independence of any state. Even more so, you can see in text number 14, armed conflict has vanished and today anyone with a mobile phone can broadcast the bloodshed but our impressions of the prevalence of war stoked by these images can be misleading for centuries wars relocated huge territories as empires were agglomerated or dismantled and states wiped off the map but since shortly after world war ii virtually no borders have changed by force and no member of the united nation had disappeared through conquest if you think about it since world war ii there was no war, and that's why I think even America's conflicts, I think Korea was called a conflict, uh, Vietnam was called an operation. There was no official war that even though, and still nobody has taken over any land because of it and so on. So we see over here very clearly, no longer does one abolish nations. Instead, nations seem intent on abolishing war. Perhaps the deepest cause of the waning war is a growing repugnance towards institutional violence, brutal customs that commonplace of war millennia, 
and have largely abolished cannibalism, human sacrifice, heretic burning, chattel slavery, punitive mutilation, sadistic executions, could war really be going away in the slave of auctions? When Alexander the Great and all the other great conquerors, what made them great was their warriors, the fact they probably today would have brought in front of the hog and be prosecuted for what they did at the time. So what we see, basically, what we find is the very fact that war and the concept of war is in the decline is, again, a sign of the redemption. The very concept, as the Torah's prophecy of telling us of the future redemption, that as we draw closer how we feel about war and what we see in the world, the amount of people that were killed in wars and battles going back 500,000 years ago dramatically decreased that doesn't even exist today. Going in a step further, talking about weapons improvement, we talk about wep- the improvement of weapons and war and peace. We have seen an improvement in the reduction of weaponry. It used to be in the past, people would fight with spears, knives, arrows, which can kill only a limited amount of people, but at the same time it wasn't directed. Today, with precision bombing and precision um, a kistra, a yeah, but at the same time with drones and all these things, we are able to... So clearly identify the enemy, not only identify the enemy, but also only wipe out that exact person not, and not cause any damage around them. It eliminates people in the battlefield. Correct. It eliminates people in the battlefield. And even more so, yet with all that, we know about the dramatic, um, with the amazing thing that happened in 1991 when U.S. and Russia entered something called the START, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which was the decommissioning of their nuclear arsenal. And ever since then, thousands of missiles have been decommissioned, as you can see in our graph that we have right here. Estimated global nuclear warhead inventory from 1945 to 2020 has dramatically diminished. And by the time we're talking about, America has only 6% of what they started off with. As we know... It is true that in the summer of 2019, the United States and Russia pulled out of a different treaty, but, and this was true a setback, and we do have different setbacks in war and in this provision. I'm not arguing that. There are tumultuous places around the world, whether it's Iran, Iraq, mentioned different places. There were tumultuous points, but these are setbacks. Overall, the general thing that we see generally is that we find that war nuclear arms and things like that are being diminished. Some of the recent examples that we've seen that people have used nuclear energy for purposes of productive purposes instead of killing. For example, in 2018, Thailand used the most elite force to rescue a soccer member. They're using their soldiers for good things. In Israel, who goes to, uh, who went to Haiti? Who went to all these places where there were earthquakes, they have a certain unit in the army that does these things. Just recently, by the COVID vaccine, who is standing there by the vaccines? Managing the place? The National Guard. They're using the soldiers and army for positive things instead of fighting but helping people and so on. The same idea is also the headlines. We talk about this headline right here is an interesting one. Text number 15. China's reportedly reassigned over 60,000 soldiers to do what? To plant trees in a bid to combat pollution by increasing the country's forest coverage. A large regiment from the People's Liberation Army, along with some of the nation's armed police, have been withdrawn from their post in the northern border to walk on non-military tasks inland, 
it comes as part of China's plan to at least to plant at least 84,000 kilometers, 32,400 square miles of trees at the end of the year, which is roughly the equivalent of the size of Ireland. So many of the crises we find that who again, what are we doing? We're taking the soldiers that we used for army and using them for positive things, taking, pl- taking swords and turning them to plowshares. Of course, there's a, lot, there's a long way to go, but what we see as the 10 follows, it's a positive trend that's coming. Let's go to violence. Okay, and many of us, and this is the last prophecy that we're going to talk about today. The last prophecy brings about the end of violence and crime. A criminologist, you never knew that somebody even has such a name and a title, but he's a criminologist. His name was Manuel Eisner from the University of Cambridge. Made this outline of violence across Europe during the past 800 years, assembling hundreds of homicide records, and he analyzed the murder decline, and this is what he say, came with. Whoops, decline in violence. Here we go. Figure 1.3 right here. We see homicide rates across Western Europe per 100,000 from 1300 to 2016. Look at the dramatic drop. You talk about it went from 24 per 100,000 in the 14th century to 0.6 homicides in the early 1960s. In Italy, the numbers are even more drastic, from approximately 73 homicides to 100,000 to 0.9 in 2016. What about in recent history? Are we progressing or regressing? As early as the 1990s, since the early 1990s, violence has gone down by, by, what was it, 50%. In 2000, you can see this in, 2000, in text number 16, and here's something like this. In 2019, according to a survey conducted by Gallup, about 64% of Americans believe that there was more crime in the U.S. than there was a year ago. It's a belief we've consistently held for decades now. But as you can see on the chart below, we've been just as consistently very wrong. Crime rates do fluctuate from year to year. For example, in 2020, because of COVID, if you want to say because of COVID or because of the lack of whatever it may be, put your own words inside. For example, murder has been up, but other crimes were on the decline. And the trend line of violence become over the last 30 years has been down, not up. The Bureau of Justice Statistics found that the rate of violent crimes for 1,000 American age 12 and, un- and older plummeted from 80 per- to 1993 to just 23 in 2018. The country has gotten much, much safer, but somehow Americans don't seem to feel or knee-jerk emotional level about it. The biggest challenge really that we're really seeing is that the society across the board right now is that even though our organizations, our businesses, our government entities are becoming more data-driven, we as human beings, listen to this, are not. A research scholar said as follows. So what are we doing? What do we see from here? After we put all these prophecies together, the bottom line that we see is that things are getting better. Not only are they getting better, but we see that they're drastically getting better. Not only in the past 100 or 200 years, but just even the last two decades, we can see the world is drawing progressively safer, more trending towards the messianic prophecy of, that, of a complete eradication of human violence, robbery, and destruction. So here comes the big question. Why is it that we spoke about today in our lesson? We read all these prophecies, and they sounded absolutely fantastic. 
but unrealistic. We were saying, how is it possible such a thing can happen? And then when we went to analyze the facts and the numbers, we see it's really happening. So how is it now that they, we're looking at a different world? So are we pretending? Are we lying to ourselves? What's going to happen now? So while the general trajectory is positive, yes, there are setbacks. And 2020 may have been one of those setbacks. And it was a difficult year for many people in all kinds and shapes of ways, whether it was for poverty, whether it was people's health, whether it was whatever it may be, the COVID pandemic was a setback. But what we've learned from a situation is not to focus too heavily on one single data. That means if we would look at how many people got sick one day, that wouldn't tell us the answer of what COVID is. We have to look at a general picture from seven days, 14 days, three months, three weeks, whatever it may be. And therefore, over here, yet many people who are, while seeing many amazing things in our life, what happened? What do they look at? The negative. If I ask you to look at this picture, what do you see? One tile that's missing. But there's so many tiles here that are good. There's so many tiles that are here. But what do we focus on? What do we zoom at? The defect. The defect. The missing tile. This is part of the human condition. And before somebody asks, is it social media that's doing it? It's not social media. Is it the media? It's not the media. We, as part of the human condition, we focus on what sticks out. I'll give you a little example. You're all sitting in this room. And I'm telling you that if, I t- if I'm telling you, I'll give each one of you $100 if you don't look here. Where do you all look? There. Why? Because I told you not to. What sticks out in your mind the moment you're saying a negativity is what comes out? Because it's not the norm. Because I told you not to look there, so it became the norm. And as they used to say in media, or as they still say, if it bleeds, it leads. To put it in different words, yes. Corruption sells, or what's it called? People want to hear the bad stuff about other people. Slanders, gossip sells. Gossip sells. Unfortunately, what do we see? And this is called the missing tile syndrome. The reason why we have a skewed vision of the world is because we see this gorgeous mosaic, but we've become accustomed to the gorgeous mosaic. And instead we come and we've created this tunnel vision of a missing tile. So every time, and this is why I say, don't watch the news and don't read the news, but every single time you watch or read the news, your head starts spinning from all the negativity that they're putting in there. Why? Because, remember, the news is not the full reality. Have the courage to open up your eyes and realize that there's more to the picture that they're not telling you. Or don't read the news at all, and then you'll have to stay really positive. That I can tell you. Okay, so what we see over here, the same idea is also in everything. You know, they say if you take a paper and you fold it, you fold it in half, right? And then how much more of that paper are you getting when you fold in half? Yeah, but I'm saying the day you fold it, how much higher are you going? Twice as high. Twice as high. Mm-hmm. How many papers will it take that you fold to be able to get what, how much you're going to get from it? They say 20 papers. If you would then open up all those papers, it can be as high as the Empire State Building. Because every single time you take that actual fold paper and fold it again and fold it again and fold it again, mm-hmm. what are you getting? Each time you're getting higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. Think of it this way. They say once there was this, there's a famous legend 
there was this uh, farmer who saved the king. And the king asked him, what can I reward you with? So the, king, so the farmer told the king, he said, if you take a chess, take a chess, uh, a chess board, every single day, give me a grain of rice on the chessboard, but double the amount you had the day before. So let's say on the first day you put one grain of rice on each one of the chessboards, and the second day you're going to put two grains of rice, the next day you're going to put four grains of rice, the next day you're going to put eight grains of rice. You follow? Mm-hmm. How much do you think you came up with? Finally, on the 64th square, he would have to put more than one quintillion grains of rice, which is equal to about 200 billion tons of rice. Okay? Just to give you an example how quickly. Or if you do the math, if I were to give you each day for 20 days, do the math here. If I gave you uh, $100 each day for 20 days, okay, you would end up with how much? $2,000. But if I gave you a dollar a day, tomorrow, huh? Okay, and I gave you a double every day. After 20 days, you will have more than $500,000 on the 20th day. Okay? So for what, is this, what are we telling us over here? It's the same idea when we talk about for the, first for the first 150 years after the Industrial Revolution, our knowledge went in increments. First came cars, then planes, refrigeration. But the rate of change in the last 30 years, think about it. How long ago were you able to just Google something and find an answer? How long ago was that? 20 years. Not Google yet 20 years? No, no, 2008. 2008, I think, was the first time was Google. Okay? How long ago was 2008? I was married already, huh? I was 12 years ago. It was hot body. 13 years ago, huh? There was Yahoo early. Yeah, but I'm yeah, there was other search. But I'm talking about, what about taking a phone that had, I remember my first phone was that flip when I first... A smartphone was the Palm Pilot. Remember that one? Sure. Palm Trio. And then you went from the Palm Pilot to the Palm Trio. Right. I remember. Yeah. And how long ago was that? 10 years ago? 20. No, it wasn't 20 years ago. Yeah. 12, 15 years ago. To be able the advent of the smartphone. So we see technology, unbelievable. The fact how it's accelerating. Everything we learn today tells us that everything that's happening in this world is accelerating by exponential type of views. Today we spoke about many different prophecies about Mashiach. But we found that they are relatable. We found that they can happen. But what we've only spoke about today is only the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more that's going to happen, a lot more that we can talk about. But after all, Mashiach is not just about peace. It's not just about universal prosperity. It's not just about curing diseases. It's a spiritual transformation that happens into the world a time when the Jewish people will return to our Holy Land of Israel, the building of the Holy Temple, and all of humankind comes to recognize God's creation, God's existence, and to serve God. So what we've, so in other words, what we discussed today was this beautiful universal achievements, but it didn't sound too Jewish. It looks like scientists are doing very well. What is the Jewish spiritual soul of all of this that we learned today? Today we discussed the body. Next week, We'll discuss the soul. So tune in for next week as we hopefully get a better uh, online connection. The exponential growth, positive growth, as I'm showing you over here, 1927, continuing all of a sudden, just to show you on a graph, this is pretty amazing. 
1886, they had a car. 1903, the play. 1927, the television. You see the difference from when they got to the television? Even in your car, your first car, you had air conditioning in it? Yeah, I had the windows. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. Huh? Your first car had air conditioning? Yeah, it was already Now, from the air conditioning in your car to having a CD player, MP3 player, or USB, how quick did that take? That means, okay, that's what I'm saying. So from the air conditioning, they got a tape recorder. But the moment they already had the CD player in it, the moment you had a CD player in your car, your next car already was a USB and, a, and an MP3 player. DVD. Well, there you go. So look, from 1980 to 2021, look how many more advances. The exponential growth. But what we have, another five weeks ahead of us, and hopefully you'll join us on this journey, that we can further discuss and analyze and see how these drastic changes in the world are all part of a spiritual change and are getting us ready and the world for the coming of Moshiach. So, next week, same time, same place. Oops, there we so, go. So, yes. one of your lines, I, I was listening to some uh, uh, podcasts yesterday, and they said, someone said on day one of the 30-day month, in million dollars, Every day I'll give you a penny and we'll do what your father said. We'll double it. Which would you take? The penny and doubling it? The penny. You didn't remember. Okay, good to see you all. Any questions from here? Again, if uh, please come by and pick up the book. Just call me first to make sure I have it for you. All the best. Wishing you a good night. Don't forget Lagba Omer, Thursday night, 6.30 p.m. Join us for a barbecue. And pray that it doesn't rain. Have a good night. Don't you think all this change is the reason people are so negative? <coughs> what change? Yeah, it is, you know, when I was a young man, there was such this stability. When I, you know, I was born in 56. You could have been drafted any day, huh? What? You could have been drafted any moment. Yeah. When I left my parents' house in 1980, they still had a television with seven or eight channels, whatever it was. I remember when Shlema. Shlema, when I left my parents' house until today, they still don't have a television. I know, well, there's no problem. We won't get about that. But you could have a television. Yes. And you can go by somewhere and see what's on the screen. And it was nice because less channels, less time on television, we were more productive. You know, less stuff going on. You walk, you 